We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Now, with your Bible open to the Gospel of John and chapter number 16, I would like to stir up your minds by way of remembrance concerning the ministry of the work of the Holy Spirit. And I recognize that this is a tremendous uh, theme and uh, we cannot handle it in one subject, all of it, in one day. I'd never be able to co- cover the territory that would be required. But I do want to remind you of the, the work of the Spirit, the ministry, if you want to use that word, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God at work in the world today as an active uh, agent for God. I don't think the Holy Spirit is a passive, a dormant personality. I don't think the ministry of the Spirit or the work of the Spirit of God has yet been concluded. I don't think it's yet been completed. I feel that the Spirit of God yet has a ministry to perform. And I more than that insist that that ministry and that work is being performed and will continue to be discharged until all finds wonderful conservation. I have that confidence in the blessed Spirit of God, not passive, but active, not unnecessary, but vital. And how we need to recognize that fact, the vital uh, aspect of the work of the Spirit of God in us today. I would not take from the labor of God's people. I think we ought to be fervent in the Spirit, zealous for the Lord, always busy in season, out of season. I think we that are saved ought to constantly pray, Lord, lead me uh, to some task that I may perform to God's glory. We aren't saved by our works, but we're saved to work. And I think God's people ought to be faithful and and zealous and working people, witnessing people, uh, uh, preaching people, giving people. We ought to be busy. I thank God for those in our church that are busy, in our Sunday school, we have some 60 Sunday school classes here at Tabernacle. That means we have about 60 teachers with their assistants who are busy. That means we have about 60 class presidents who are busy and class secretaries who are busy. And then the others, uh, deacons and ushers and others that are actively uh, applied themselves in some kind of a work to God's Lord. To say nothing of your own personal things that you do, private things that you do. If I could see into the pocketbooks of many of you ladies, I'd find gospel tracts. And you make it a ministry to, to spread those everywhere you go. If I could look into the coat pocket of some of you men, I'd find a supply of gospel tracts. And you too make it a ministry to spread those tracts wherever you go, uh, every day that you live, every opportunity that you might enjoy. And I think we ought to be engaged and occupied in doing things like that. And I would not take from the ministry and the work of an individual. But I'm trying to extol he that is above any individual. He who is the only uh, source of grace and power upon an individual. He, the blessed Spirit of God, who is God with us now as he ministers and as he works and as he carries on his labor in this world, in this dispensation, to the glory and to the honor of God. Now, you read the newspapers, you think the world's just about ready to come to a close, and everything's about ready to fall in, 
and the skies are going to fall on us and uh, we're going to cover ourselves in pollution and bear ourselves in garbage and uh, pollute ourselves with a lot of other things. But you don't take a lot of that, just take it with a grain of salt. I don't bother with that kind of stuff. Uh, God has not abandoned this earth. And may I say more than that, God's people have not yet abandoned this earth. They're still God's people. And they're good people, honest people, hardworking people, clean people, devout people, faithful people, loyal people, honest people, God's people, salt of the earth, the light of the world. Amen. And they're, they're still here. And more than that, though some may die, God is yet adding to that number. And they're going to remain here until he, the Holy Ghost, takes them out in the mighty rapture. And when he takes the church out, he's going out himself. Now, when that happens, you have a cause to really become anxious and worried. Uh, if I'm left behind and don't go in the rapture, I'm going to be the most miserable person you ever heard of in your life. But I'm not expecting that. I'm expecting to go in the rapture. When Jesus comes and the rapture takes place and the Holy Ghost leaves this world, I'm expecting to leave this world also. But until that happens, we don't have a great deal to worry about. God still sits upon his throne. The main thing that ought to occupy me and you is to be faithful and loyal in our service and our devotion to the Savior. Occupying until I come, that's what he said. Occupy until I come. And then he went on to say, be anxious for nothing. Uh, that means not to worry about anything. Uh, well, I don't mean by that that you ought to be careless. I think you ought to be uh, faithful. Uh, the Bible says, go to thou sluggard and learn the lesson of an ant. An ant toils. An ant makes provisions for tomorrow. And I think a human being could learn a lesson from the little insect we call an ant. I'm not talking about uh, being seated under a tree somewhere like these hippies. And let the world go by. I'm not talking about that. Not by any means. I think God's people ought to work and labor and be faithful and industrious and diligent. But while you're doing that, don't you worry. Don't you fret. Don't become anxious. Don't be afraid. What have I got in the world to be afraid of? I don't have anything. Say, preacher, you're brave. No, 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 my friend. I'm not talking about that. <laughs> I guess if I were to get in the middle of a, a gunfight, I believe I'd hunt cover somewhere. I'm not brave enough to face that kind of a thing. I, I'm not brave at all. But I'm simply saying, why would I become anxious and worry and fret when he, the Holy Ghost, is in me and about me and above me and beneath me, behind me and at my side? to inspire and to push on and to challenge and to encourage and to protect and to seal and to keep by the power of God. I have nothing to worry about. And you have nothing to worry about. The Holy Spirit is still in this earth and the Spirit of God has not abandoned this earth. And it's a very foolish thing for you to imagine that he would abandon the earth as long as the church of God remains in this earth. He's going to be here. I tell you the truth, I don't believe he would abandon the dead. I don't think the Holy Ghost will leave this earth until the dead's been taken care of. I mean the dead in the Lord. And that means the resurrection. Amen. Can you imagine the Spirit of God leaving this world 
and leaving your mother in the ground. Never! He's going to carry me and you that are alive and remain and await. He's going to take us out. But before he does anything to us, he's going to get those in the ground up. Not some of them, but every one of them. And they are resurrected by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 22. The spirit of him that resurrected Jesus from the grave shall also quicken your mortal bodies. So we're coming out of the grave in the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. And the spirit will never leave this world until the dead are tended to and until, until the living are attended to. Uh, until the church is finished. All the program of God must find glorious fulfillment. Can you imagine that the church of God uh, come into a, a standstill and, and, uh, and become bogged down? Uh, can you imagine the day when the gospel will lose, lose its power? Uh, I'm told in Romans 1, 17, 16, and 17, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Now, Paul didn't say it is now, but he said it is all times and in all circumstances the power of God unto salvation. Do you think the gospel sword has been made dull? Do you think the gospel story has lost its appeal? Do you think the gospel message is no longer attractive? Do you think the gospel message is outdated? And that now we have a need for things that are more up-to-date and more suitable to our way of life. The old-fashioned way of preaching, expounding, and singing and worship will have to abandon. And, and no, my, 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 that's silly, that's crazy stuff. Now you can classify me as you want. But as far as I'm concerned, the gospel sword is still as sharp as a two-edged sword. It cuts going and coming. I still believe the, the gospel is yet the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Did you know people yet get saved? You got saved. People yet get saved. And as long as the church is in the earth and the Holy Ghost is in the earth, that's how long sinners are going to be converted. God hadn't forgotten us. The Spirit of God is still actively working in our day. And God is still personally concerned in our day. And God, the purpose of God is still paramount in our day. And the culmination or the termination of all God's program is still in the future. I told somebody the other day that the greatest day for the church is yet in the future. And that sounds strange in these days of modernism and false religions and cults and false doctrines to make that kind of a statement. But I say to you that the greatest day for the church is still in the future. If for no other reason, the church yet is to be raptured out. And nothing ever has happened in the past as great as the rapture shall be. And that's in the future. Oh, God still has great things in store for his church. And so don't you become occupied or fretful or worry or become dismayed by things that may press upon you or by that which you may hear over the radio or read in some magazine. Everything's all right in my Father's house. Amen. Now let's look at a verse 2 of Scripture. 
In John 16, verse number 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Jesus speaking these words. It is expedient. The word means necessary or good for you. It is expedient for you or good for you that I go away. Now, how in the world could you reconcile that? The best thing ever happened to this world is when Jesus came. And now the Lord says, it's good for you that I leave. I go away. And he went away. As he said he would. He went away. It's expedient for you that I go away. If I go not away, the comforter will not come. Now there's the answer. Jesus said, if I go, I'm going to send another one to you. And this comforter that I shall send will be with you always, even to the end. And he's coming in such a fashion until he can be with all of us at the same time. And all the time. Now the Lord Jesus could only be one place at one time. He was circumscribed with a physical body that his mother, the Virgin Mary, gave to him. But the Holy Ghost is not circumscribed. The Holy Ghost can be everywhere, in everybody, all the time, you see. And Jesus knew that. That's why he said, it's good for you that I go. Because I'm going to send another that will not be circumscribed by the human body as he was. A physical body as he was. And when he comes, he shall be in you and with you, every one of you, all the time. And he'll be just as I am. He has the same compassion, the same concern, the same power, and the same goals, and the same destiny. He has the same heritage. He has the same father. He has the same plan and purpose that I have in my own, my own life and in my own purpose. So he said, it's good for you that I go away. And if I go away, I'm going to send another comforter unto you. And when he has come, verse 8, the Holy Ghost, <clears throat> when he, the Spirit, is come. Now somebody said the other day that uh, they thought the Holy Spirit uh, was a feminine gender. Now I don't see how men can come to that kind of an idea. The Holy Ghost is masculine. The Holy Ghost is God. And they come, some people come to the idea that maybe the Holy Ghost is, uh, uh, ought to be in the feminine gender because he gives birth. No, my friend. No woman in the world can give birth. No woman in the world can give birth without a man. All right. So that, that, that shouldn't cause him trouble. The fact that a woman gives birth doesn't mean she does so without a man. No, the Holy Ghost is the one that gives birth to the soul. I birthed my children in that I gave them their life. And my wife brought them into the world. But they got their life from me. And they, you got yours from your father. And I got mine from my father. When he has come, he, the Holy Spirit, he's the agent. Not the feminine, but he, the mighty God of the universe. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, or nevertheless, when he, the spirit of truth, is come. And I'd like to report to you that he came on the day of Pentecost. The record is written in the Bible. Acts chapter number 2. 
Nevertheless, when he, the Spirit, is come, he, the Holy Spirit, will guide you into all the truth of God. He takes the things of God and reveals them to you. He shall not speak of himself. He doesn't glorify himself. He doesn't point people to himself. He doesn't point people to his ministry. He does not magnify himself. He does not speak about himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show thee things to come. He shall glorify me. Now note, he shall show you things to come. That's why I said a while ago, don't be afraid. Because the Holy Spirit many years ago revealed to me that we have nothing to be afraid of. Aren't you glad that the Spirit of God gives you that assurance? He shall show you things to come. And not only that, but he shall glorify me. The Holy Spirit never glorifies himself. But he always glorifies the Holy Son of God, the Lord Jesus. He shall receive a mind. And then he in turn shall show it unto you. And the whole ministry of the Spirit of God is revealing to God's children things about God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit actively at work in the earth. Now I want to call to your attention a few things that I feel the Spirit of God today is doing in the earth and doing through the preaching of God's Word and among the people of God and in the church of God. Number one, he testifies of Jesus. Never does he testify of any other person. The Spirit of God never points out an individual. In the day that Jesus lived or on the day of Pentecost, or in this day does the Spirit of God ever point out an individual. But instead, he points up the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He testifies of Jesus. Has it ever occurred to you that you would have never known the Lord without this faithful testimony of the Holy Spirit? There was a day in your life when the Spirit of God came to you and revealed to you the loveliness of the Savior, the power of the Savior, the sacrifice of the Savior, the compassion of the Savior, the grace of the Savior. And you would have never understood the loveliness of the Savior apart from the fact that the Spirit of God faithfully gave testimony to that loveliness. The world don't think the Lord is lovely. The world doesn't see anything excitable about Jesus. Sometimes here at Tabernacle, the pastor gets stirred, but they can get stirred, and we rejoice and praise the Lord. Some of the other of our members get stirred, and we bless the Lord and praise the Lord, and the world says, I don't understand. Well, I can understand why you don't understand. And the reason you don't understand is because the Holy Ghost has not given testimony to your soul about Jesus. If the Spirit of God ever reveals to you who the Lord Jesus is, Jesus that moment shall become your champion. That moment shall become your Savior. That moment shall become your Lord. That moment shall become your David to fight all the, uh, the giants of this life. That moment when you see the loveliness and the power of the Savior, your whole thinking, your whole perception becomes changed and Jesus becomes the one preeminent one in your life. 
Yes. We're not, I'm not putting on. I'm sincere in my soul that Jesus is more than my heart ever fancied that he could be. I've tasted of him and found that he's sweet. He's fairest among 10,000. His word to my soul is like manna from heaven. His name to me is precious, and I'd gladly bow at the shrine of Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, mighty God, everlasting Father, Counselor, King, King, God, He is. And I'd gladly bow my knee and gladly confess with my tongue. And the reason I do that is because the Holy Ghost testifies of Jesus. Had I been left alone, I'd have never seen it. Had I read the Bible alone, I would have never picked it up. Had I heard the preaching of a preacher alone, it would have never impressed me. Do you hear what I'm saying? Right. Had I read a sermon or a gospel tract alone, it would have never impressed me. But some, some way, somehow, sometimes, many years past, I sat on a church pew as a lad could hardly reach the floor with my feet. And some preacher talked about Jesus Christ. And while he talked about Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost sat next to me and said, Now, son, the preacher's telling the truth. And when I was 12 years of age, I so believed that until I walked down a church aisle and said, Jesus, I want to give you my life. I accept you as my Savior. And that was the beginning of the most wonderful things that's ever happened to me in all the span of my days. Nothing surpasses that in my life. He's indeed the preeminent one in my life. And the only reason I can see that is not that I have an intellect. It's not that I have a peculiar gift. It's not that I have a discernment in the scriptures that other people don't know. It's not that he came and put his hands in my hands. Literally not that at all. But I heard the story and the blessed spirit of God said, son, that's the truth now. You hear that? You hear that? And the spirit didn't say, you come worship me. The spirit said, you go and worship him. And so I went as a lad and bowed at the feet of Jesus Christ. Now the Holy Ghost is still doing that. He testifies of Jesus. He points men to Jesus. And then second... He magnifies the word, the Holy Ghost, magnifies the word of God. That's why me and you are fundamentalists. If that was not so, then I'd just about as soon have one Bible as another, or one translation as another. If that was not so, then any kind of a doctrine would be all right with me. Somebody put an article on my desk this week, and it and he showed uh, various denominations and leaders in these various denominations who are rapidly coming together to form what they call the ecumenical church, the world church. And they have abandoned doctrine. They have abandoned the Bible. They have abandoned their denominations. And now they're coming together. One man believe in one thing, another man believe in something else, another man practicing something else. And they're all coming together and building what they call a world church. Now, my friend, the Holy Ghost is not in that. I say without fear or contradiction, the Holy Ghost is not in that. 
Don't plan. I don't plan to get involved in that. I'd, I'd never do it. This Bible to me is God's inspired word and I could have no fellowship with a man that doesn't believe it. This Bible to me is the record of one miracle upon another, multitudes of them. One in every book a miracle, the whole book is a book of miracles and I believe them every one. I could not sit down with a man that denies a single one. This Bible to me tells me how I can be saved by faith. And I believe that this is the way, the true doctrine of salvation. I could not sit down by a man and with a man who believes that a man can be saved any other way except by faith in the crucified Savior. You see, the Holy Ghost magnifies this Bible. He says, this is the way, walk ye in it. This is the truth. Know it, defend it, proclaim it. And you can't help but be a Bible-believing fundamentalist when you follow the clear teachings of the Scriptures. That's it. Oh, but preaching now for the sake of love and fellowship and unity among all professing Christians. Why don't we lay aside all these things? Oh, my friend, that's the point. How can you lay aside doctrine? How can you lay aside the resurrection? How can you abandon verbal inspiration? How can you lay aside the doctrine of the second coming? How can you abandon the doctrine of faith? You can't do that. And the Holy Ghost will never let you do it. And you that are guided by the Spirit and illuminated by the Spirit and taught by the Spirit will die a fundamentalist. You'll never be an ecumenist. You cannot become an ecumenist. And the reason you cannot be an ecumenist is because the Holy Ghost magnifies the word. Number three, he edifies the saint. The word edify means to build up, means to make strong. It also means to beautify. It means to adorn. The Holy Ghost makes strong the saint of God. He edifies the, the saint of God. He makes strong the saint of God. He adorns the saint with the fruit of the Spirit. And your life becomes a fruit-bearing life. And through the fruit that you bear and produce, your life becomes adorned. Now these are the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, temperance, and so on. Nine fruit of the Spirit. There are nine gifts of the Spirit that passed away. And God instituted nine fruit of the Spirit in this age of the Spirit. And men that are saved by the grace of God have the nine fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And become edified and adorned and strengthened and built up by the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in your life. Now you can't have that fruit without the Spirit of God abiding within. Can you imagine a man having joy without the abiding Spirit? No. Now a man may laugh. A man may watch a TV program and laugh. But you, that, that's an outward, superficial, worldly sort of thing. But you can have joy and not laugh. Because that's an inside reality. 
produced by the Spirit of God. And one of the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Now we have that on the inside. And that comes only from the ministry of the Spirit. He gives an inward joy that can never become disturbed. He does that. He edifies the saints. Number four, the Spirit of God unifies the body. The body of Christ, composed of all that are saved in God's grace, brought together in one unit, one body, fitly framed together. I never cease to marvel how God can do that. In our Bible Institute in the, uh, in the hermeneutics class, we've been studying the tabernacle and the typology of the tabernacle. And uh, we're all stand amazed that when those 600,000 men with their wives and children, somebody said two million maybe, came out of Egypt on the night of the Exodus, that they brought with them everything they needed to build the tabernacle. That means that they brought the gold and the brass and the silver. Well, they must have become thieves and stole it from the Egyptians. No, that's another one of the miracles of the Bible. Those Israelites went to the Egyptians' masters and said, Will you give me this? And uh, these Egyptians, not knowing why they were asking, God instructed them to ask. But they didn't know why they were asking. I imagine a servant walked up and said, uh, Dear ma'am, would you give me this silver spoon? And to the utter amazement of the Israelitish woman, that Egyptian mistress said, yes, sir, you can have that silver spoon. And she put it in her satchel and carried it home. And then a man working down on the farm uh, walked up to his uh, taskmaster and said, uh, Mr. Taskmaster, that's the be most beautiful ring I've ever saw. A and you wear it. That's a beautiful ring. A lot of gold in that ring, taskmaster. And I've watched it on your finger many a day. Sir, would you give me that ring? Now, he was an Egyptian, and the man asking was a, was a Jewish slave. Sir, would you give me that ring? It has several carats of pure gold. I, I'd appreciate it if you'd give me that ring. And to his utter amazement, that taskmaster pulled that ring or slipped that ring off his finger and said to his slave, you may have this ring. And that Egyptian didn't understand why he did it, but he did. And when you multiply that by 600,000 men, that's about 100,000 spoons and about 100,000 rings and about 100,000 watches and about 100,000 this or the other. And when those Jews got all that gold and all that silver and all that brass together, they found out they had a pretty good supply. And then out in the wilderness, when Moses began to call for it, when the tabernacle was being built, they all brought it and laid it down together. And it was all melted together. And every ounce of gold Moses needed came out of the pockets of those Amen. slaves. Every bit of silver he needed came out of the pockets of those slaves. Isn't that astounding? But not only did he do that, but those Egyptians also released these Jews who had the ability to build the tabernacle. And when you study the tabernacle, you'll find that its golden altars were carved and shaped and designed. It took a skilled hand to beat that golden candlestick out of a 125-pound wedge of gold. The golden candlestick was not made and attached in separate pieces and then put together. It was beaten out of one solid wedge of gold. 
And it took a man that knew something about how to do that. Uh, some man that had the gift in his hand to be able to shape and to mold that golden candlestick with three branches on this side and three on this side and the one center branch which, which speaks of Jesus and the six side branches that speak of, the, of you and me. All of that was beaten out of one piece of gold, a little bit at the time, beaten out, taken out. A picture of me and you taken from the side of the Savior. Jesus, who is the chief light in that center shaft and the three side branches, the lesser light, you and I. Now, I could never do that. But when God called those Israelites out, he knew that in that company there'd be a man that was skilled as a goldsmith. Another man skilled as a carpenter. Another man skilled as an ironsmith. Another man skilled to make that embroidered cherub in the inside cover of the tabernacle. You women, if you could have seen that, you'd have stood there and oohed and odd all day long. If you could have gone into the tabernacle and looked up and that beautiful inside cover of sky blue with the cherubim woven embroidered into that cover, oh, you'd have never gotten over that. I imagine that was one of the most beautiful tapestries you've ever looked at in all your lifetime. All of it handmade. And God endowed those youths with the ability to do that. All of it was fitly framed together. When Moses got out into the wilderness and got ready to build the tabernacle, he didn't have to say, now fellas, we, we got a great project on foot. And we've got all the gold we need and all the brass we need and all the silver we need. But we need somebody that knows how to do the work. And I've searched and searched, and there's not a person in all the camp uh, that's skilled in the art of goldsmith. And I don't know how in the world we're going to get it built. Now, we need to build it, and God told me to build it. And you brought enough gold out and everything else, but I just haven't got anybody that can do it. Oh, no, my friend, no. The omniscient God that led the people out also endowed the people and brought them together in one unit to the degree that everything Moses needed, he found. Now that's unity. That's real unity. And I have that unity, and you have that unity in the body of Christ. God takes one here, another here, another here. And we all begin to think alike, sing alike, believe alike, preach alike, tithe alike, shout alike, look alike, dress alike, act alike. And we come from various families and from different environments. But when God brings us in, we're all united together in one body. Now who does that? The blessed Holy Spirit of God. Amen, brother. I believe that. When I was a lad in the city of Greenville, I had no idea that I'd ever be a preacher. But I'm as confident, and I say this as humble as I know how to say it. I'm simply trying to illustrate my point. I'm as confident of this fact as I am of anything, that God saved me to minister and called me to minister at Tabernacle for these 22 years. Now, I've made a lot of bobbles, and I've made a lot of mistakes, and I guess I'm about the poorest pastor you ever heard of. But I think God had this work designed just for me. I mean, it's past, it's not my work. I'm only one person, it's your work also. But the, there's not many pastors, only one pastor in the crowd. 
There, there's many deacons and many singers and many members, but there's only one pastor. And I think God prepared me for this work. And I think he prepared you for what you're doing as me and you labor together in the vineyard of souls. No doubt in my mind about that. Now, I could have never gotten this crowd together. I could have never organized this church as it is. We could have never produced the program that we have or devised the ministry God's given. But the Lord did it, you see. You didn't recognize it when it was being done, but God brought you and gave you the tabernacle. That's right. God saved you and brought you the tabernacle. God looked down through the ears and, and said, now, uh, a tabernacle is going to need a singer. I need a choir director. And there used to be a little skinny boy around, running around here in Sunday school. And God said, I think Melvin Aiken can handle that. And so the Lord saved him. And then called him. And then put him in here. I mean, I didn't go to Melvin when he was nine years old and said, now son, I want you to leave the singing at Tabernacle. And all I did was baptize him. God did everything else. But I think the Lord knew all the time that Brother Melvin would spend nine years of his life doing what he's doing. He's not here by my design. He's not here by your design. His mother didn't come to me and say, now, uh, Pastor, my boy, I want you to... No, she didn't do that. Nobody else came to me. I had nothing to do with it. The Holy Ghost did it. Now when Brother Melvin has to go, and I pray that'll be a long time, I hope it'll be after I'm gone. Or when I must go, and I hope that'll be a long time also. But God will have somebody take his place, God will have somebody to take mine. You see, the Holy Ghost does that. I don't do that. God does that. The Holy Ghost unifies the body, brings it together. And oh, what wonderful fellowship we've enjoyed these years. So many of our people, last year we buried more of our members in any other one year. Uh, the new highlight, by the way, I want to say a word to you about it and forgot it. But we'll reveal that to you. We, we buried, I think, 25 of our members last year. And I regret the loss of those. Some of the best people we've ever had last year. And then pushing the years back, some other dear saints of God. All those people became part of us, I believe, in God's will, God's program. How about the mission program? How would you explain Dan Truax? I think Dan is a member of Tabernacle, not because he may have specially wanted to be. I think we needed him. And God brought him. I never will forget the circumstances, Mary, how you and Dan became members of this church. I had time. I'd love to tell that story. I've told it many times. Love to tell it again. I don't think they planned that. I didn't plan. I didn't go to Brother Dan and say, now, Dan, we need you over Tabernacle. When Dan and Mary joined this church, it never dawned on me that we would have the mission program that we now have. And this budget and this highlight will show you that next year we'll spend almost $200,000 for missions. Didn't dawn upon me. And when Dan and Mary joined this church, I don't know what we were given per month then for mission, but I'd guess maybe $250 maybe to per month. Now we give that much per day or less or more. I haven't figured it up. But uh, I, they, they, God sent them in here. God brought them in here. Same way with Brother Edwards. Brother Edwards didn't plan to be our director, but he is. God brought him, you see. God does that. God unifies the body. Now, I'm willing to let the Lord do what he wants to do. If he wants me to stay, I'll stay. If he wants me to go, I'll go. 
I'm willing for God to do what he wants to do because he's actively engaged in unifying the body, bringing the body together. Then I'd remind you too that he rectifies the wrong. The Holy Ghost rectifies the wrongs. What do you mean? I mean the Spirit of God will rebuke you when you get out of order. When you become disobedient. When you become rebellious. When you begin to pull contrary to the group. The Spirit of God will reprove you and rebuke you and make you straighten that up. And you might sometimes think the preacher is throwing at you. I don't do that. I don't do that in the pulpit. I don't like to throw at people when I'm looking them square in the eye. One by one. I don't like, I don't like fuss at people. I just don't like to fuss at people. I'd rather have peace. And I think those that work with me would be uh, compelled to admit that. I don't go in and pick a fuss at Brother Edwards. And I don't pick a fuss at Brother Aiken. And I have it. Don't, I don't plan to start it. I, I want peace. But when one of you get out of order and I say something in the pulpit and it hits you like a ton of bricks, you say, the preacher's, no, I'm not throwing at you. The Holy Ghost is trying to whip you in the line, you see. He rectifies the wrong. When you do wrong, he makes you feel badly about it. When you do worldly, he makes you feel badly about it. When you disobey the Lord, he makes you feel badly about it. He rectifies the wrong. Now, he's the great shepherd of this flock. And I'm the under-shepherd. The Holy Ghost is the great agent of this flock. And not me. I simply try to follow his orders, you see. And then last but not least, he satisfies the pilgrim. If you ever get in and start down this way with the Lord, I don't have to worry too much about you. I, I worry about these that just get one foot in. They're much like Pharaoh when he said to Moses, you may go, but don't go far. And then second proposition, he said, you may go, but don't carry your children. Third proposition, you may go, but don't go so far, but what you can't come back over to visit us. But God said, Moses, I want you to leave this country and take all your children. And I want you to go so far, you can never come back. That was a pretty big order. They had the wilderness ahead of them. But you know, when Moses started out with all those two million Israelites with him, they never became disillusioned. They never became discouraged. Now, they murmured a little bit. But to answer all the murmuring, God provided mercy. Water out of the rock, manna from heaven, miracles by Aaron's rods. You see? God provided grace. Every time they murmured, God gave grace. And God satisfies the pilgrim. And so it is with me and you. When you start out with the Lord and go all the way with God, God will maintain that momentum. Now you may get to the place where you're almost bogged down and slow down, get slower and slower, and you say to yourself, I'm just going to have to quit. No, you won't quit. Uh, when you get in that condition, the Holy Ghost knows how to spark you on. He'll probe you on. He'll push you on. And you won't quit. He... He satisfies the pilgrims. He makes you glad that you're saved. You remember old, old Hosea said to his children, Hosea's wife became a harlot woman and forsook him and forsook their children. And old Hosea loved her so much, he said to his kiddies, he said, children, go out into the streets and find your mother. That's a sad proposition, isn't it? Go find your mother. 
And when you find your mother, tell her to come home. He said, you tell your mother she'll come home. I'll do some wonderful things for her. To begin with, I'll turn the valley of Achor into a door of hope, the valley of trouble into a door of hope. But I won't stop with that. He said, I'll sit her down beneath the vineyards. I'll take her out into the clearings. And she may not see the vineyard from her uh, point of view, but I know where the vineyards are. And I'll take her to the vineyards and I'll put her down beneath the grape vineyards and she can just eat and enjoy those good things. I'll give her vineyards from thence, is the way the Bible puts it. And then you tell your mama she'll come on also. He said, I'll teach her to sing again like she sang when she was a young girl. Though she's marred a life and though she's committed sin, I'll give her the mirth of her youth again. And then tell her also, if she'll come home, no longer will I compel her to call me Belai, which means master. But I'll teach her how to call me Yishai, which means lover. I'll be a lover to her. Don't you see the graciousness of God in that? Here I am walking down the highway of life. And the old devil's gouging at me and the world slandering me. And people misunderstand me. And I get discouraged and I slow down. Almost bogged down. Almost come to the stopping point. And the Holy Ghost knows my dilemma. And he knows where that vineyard is. And so he guides me out to that vineyard. And puts me down right in the middle of it. And I look up and here's the grapes hanging down. And I begin to eat vineyards from thence. Brother, how can I get discouraged when he leads me to the vineyards? He'll do that. He satisfies the pilgrims. Now, I don't know where those vineyards are, but he knows he planted them. And he planted them for me and you. And he knows exactly how to lead me to that vineyard that I can sit out and enjoy the good things of God. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.